Hey everyone, welcome to the Sermon Podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location, where each week you'll hear a message designed to help you learn more about God, grow in your love of God and others, so that you can go and live a life driven by faith. Today we begin a new journey through a book called Daniel. You and I live in a culture that's increasingly opposed to those who follow Jesus, don't we? And it can be a challenge sometimes to understand how we are to live in such a world. And so in this journey through the book of Daniel, we're going to learn from someone named Daniel and three of his friends how to live in such a world. It's an important topic, so I hope you listen closely and I hope you enjoy it, because I believe that God has something he would like to say to you. If you had told me, if you had told me that a few years ago, you told me five, ten years ago, that I was going to have to consistently convince my computer that I wasn't also a computer, I would have thought you were crazy. You told me that there will be a time where you're going to have to convince your computer that you're not a robot. I would have thought that was odd, but I do that all the time, don't you? Every time you go to log into email or you log into your bank account or something like that, every once in a while, and certainly when you start a new account, uh, your computer will ask you, are you also a computer? And you have to prove to your computer that you're indeed human. Uh, And you can't do that just by waving your hands or telling your computer. How do you do that? You do it by uh, trying to decipher these squiggly letters and these squiggly numbers and trying to figure that out and type it in. Or maybe they give you a bunch of pictures and you have to click the stop signs or something like that. But you have to convince your machine that you are also not a machine, right? Why do we do that? Why does that happen to us? Well, the reason that happens is because very actively right now in this world, there are people out there, I don't want to scare you right now, but there are people out there who are actively trying to steal your identity, aren't there? And maybe some of you have had the joy of having something on the scale of having your identity uh, stolen happen to you. Have you ever gotten emails from people asking if you sent this and you didn't? Did you send this link? No, I didn't send the link. Don't click on it. Or maybe even something more serious, a charge showed up on your credit card or something like that. There are people out there who are actively trying to, to steal your information and steal my information. Now, that's not the reason we had you fill out those contact forms, okay? I promise you. But there are people out there who are actively doing it. So we have to protect ourselves, don't we? We have to protect what is important to us. So our bank accounts, our credit cards, our email, all that stuff has to be protected because there's people out there uh, who are trying to take it from us for their own gain. Now, you and I live in an increasingly secular culture. I could pull out all sorts of statistics and I could pull out all sorts of stories to convince you of that. But my guess is, is that you agree with me. You know what what we're talking about. We live in an increasingly secular culture, don't we? Stories that where God used to be the hero in our culture now are replaced by our own intellect and other people. Those are the heroes of our story now. The people that are, that are really upheld in our culture. It's not God doing the work, it's us doing the work. And that is changing over time. Our culture is becoming more and more secular. And here's what I want to suggest to you this morning. I want to suggest to you that just like there are people in this world who are trying to steal our identity when it comes to things like bank information and emails and all of that fun stuff, there are people in this world who are actively trying to steal your identity as a follower of Jesus Christ. That if you're someone that calls yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're someone who has faith 
then there is a culture out there that is priding themselves on their ability to steal that piece of our identity away from us, aren't there? And some, we know what this feels like, don't we? We know what the stories look like. We know the story of the girl who grew up in the church and starred in all the church plays and did all the big activities and then went off to the college or the university and left her faith behind. We know the young man who was the star of of the youth group and everything that they were doing and then went to the workplace and started to make money and started to find success and hasn't thought about God in a long time. We know the young family that says, we're going to commit to going to church and we're going to make sure our children have some sense of faith and morality in their life, but then all the other activities of athletics and extracurricular activities take over and that idea is left in the dust. And we know the person who's followed God for decades in their life. And then way down the road, something tragic happens. And rather than turn back into what God would say, they turn to the latest self-help guru and God gets erased. We know how this works. And we also know how it feels, don't we, to live in a culture that would actively try to steal this part of who we are, this part of our identity. You just have to turn on the television or watch a documentary or walk into a classroom or walk into your office perhaps, and you know what it feels like to have people around you uh, living in such a way that it would try to steal this piece of who you are. And often it looks like shame. There is a idea running through our culture. This is how I would paraphrase it. Smart, well-adjusted, reasonable people believe in human intellect and the goodness of people. Dumb, simple-minded people believe God exists and that Jesus is who he says he is. That's the narrative in our culture. That's how it works. And so you walk into work and all your coworkers, when they talk, that's how they talk. When faith comes up, that's how they speak about it. Those dumb people. And when you walk into your classroom, that's how your professor talks about it, or that's how your teacher talks about it. And when you, some of us, when we walk into our homes, that's how our spouse talks about it, or that's how our children talk about it, that's how our family talks about this. And so we know what this is like to live in a culture that would, would actively try to steal our faith. So here's what I want us to think about this morning. Here's what I want us to talk about today. For the next few moments that we have together, uh, I want us to think about if we password protect all of our important information as to who we are. We put the password and the encryption on all of our bank data and all of our email data and all things like that. How can we, how can you and how can I encrypt our faith, put the life lock on our heart, password protect our identity as followers of Jesus so that this world we live in that would actively try to steal that from us can't get a hold of it. And if we're talking about that, I don't know of a better place to go in the Bible than the book of Daniel. I don't know a better place to go in talking about how to maintain faith in the midst of a culture that doesn't believe in God and doesn't think it's a good way to live than the book of Daniel. Now, some of us uh, are familiar with, with one big story in the book of Daniel. That's, that's how most of us approach this book, right? Because some of us went to Sunday school and we sat through all the lessons and it was the five, same five stories in the Bible every single year. And so the big story in the book of Daniel is what? Daniel and the... Lion's Den, that's right. So you know the story. You remember the flannel graphs up on the, up on the uh, board there. And so that's chapter 6 of Daniel. 
But there are 11 other chapters in this book of Daniel trying to live out his faith in a culture that didn't believe. Let me tell you what happened to Daniel. Daniel, when he was a teenager, somewhere around 586 or 589 B.C., um, about 25, 2,600 years ago, Daniel uh, was a teenager, and he had spent his whole life growing up in a culture that believed in the God of this book. He was a, a Jewish individual living in a Jewish uh, culture, lived in the land of Judah, part of the Israelites, part of God's people. And when he was a child, uh, the king of Israel, the king of Judah, was a, a, a guy by the name of Josiah. And Josiah took the throne when he was eight years old, which sounds crazy, doesn't it? But he actually turned out to be a really good king. Josiah led the Israelites to honor God and follow him. And then Josiah was replaced by other kings who weren't so good. So about the time Daniel was a teenager, a young adult, his nation was taken over by a really terrible group of people known as the Babylonians. These were professional exilers. These were professional people. This is what they did as an empire, as a nation. The Babylonians took over other people, and they weren't nice about it either. They dominated other people groups. And so when Daniel was a young man, he not only has lived in this culture, but Daniel was also part of the royal class. So he wasn't just living a nice life being among other people who thought the way he thought. He was living it up, enjoying life. He had everything that he needed. And so you can imagine with me when this other people group comes and takes over his land. I'm sure many of the people that Daniel knew lost their life in that moment. And his family is broken apart. And all of a sudden he's in this new place. You can appreciate with me what that might do to a person. And as we begin the book, that's where we find Daniel and three of his friends. We're going to work through this this morning. And as we do, we're going to watch how Daniel, in the midst of this whole mess, guards his identity as someone who trusts in God. You know a good password uh, for, your, for a website contains a number of things, right? It usually has a capital letter, usually has a number somewhere, usually has some other symbol in it. A good password for your heart and your identity includes a number of things as well. In fact, three things that Daniel does in this chapter that we're going to see for ourselves. So look what happens here in the first few verses. This is Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Watch what happens to Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, that's the guy that took over after Josiah, right? Josiah was great. Jehoiakim, not so great. King of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So think about the temple that would have been in Jerusalem that Daniel would have gone to every day. All those artifacts that were in the temple, now sitting in the temple of the Babylonian gods, probably the god Marduk. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. That's Daniel. Youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them in the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. 
And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. You see, for the Babylonians, as really professionals in taking over other cultures, when they took over another culture, it wasn't just about killing people and dominating people. It was also about rewriting their story. They didn't just come in and make sure that people knew that they were now in charge. They took over and they wanted to make sure for generations, the people that they took over lived as the Babylonians lived. And so you can see in these verses that their plan was very calculated. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylon, said, Go in to the people from Judah. Go to the royal class. Find me the best-looking young men and also the brightest young men. Bring them to me. And here's what we're going to do. For three years, we are going to teach them the ways of the Chaldeans, which is the same as the Babylonians, the ways of the Babylonians. And it was really a three-pronged approach, right? Quite effective. One, they were going to isolate these young men. They were going to take them away from their home, everything that they were familiar with, family, bring them to Babylon. The second thing they were going to do was indoctrinate them, teach them everything that the Babylonians believed. This is language, religion, philosophy. And then they were going to, as best they could, change their identity. Isolate them, indoctrinate them, and change their identity. These four Jewish boys, they walked into Babylon and they had Jewish names and their names had meaning. Daniel's name means God is a judge in Hebrew. Hananiah's name means God is gracious. Mishael means who is like God. And Azariah means God helps. And so these young Jewish men, they walk into the king's court and the king says, your names that talk about this Jewish God that you used to serve, we're changing those. And we're going to give you names that promote the Babylonian gods. And so Daniel becomes Belteshazzar and his friends become Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Or if you're like me and you grew up on VeggieTales, Rack, Shack, and Benny, if that helps you. And he rewrites their identity from the, from the very names that they were given at birth to say, you're no longer Jewish, you're now Babylonian. And Daniel has to begin protecting himself. And his friends have to begin protecting their identity because now they're in this culture that would want to steal the very identity that is the core of who they are as people who love and serve the God of the Israelites. And so what does he do? Well, he does three things. And for you two, if you want to password protect your heart, you want to put a life lock on your faith so that the world around us doesn't steal it from you, there's three things to do. First is this, remember that no matter who is in charge, God is in control. No matter who is in charge, God is in control. Look at what it says in verse 2 there. It's very clear. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. 
You see, it looked like to everybody who was around there that the Babylonians were in charge and that Nebuchadnezzar was in charge, that they had all the power. But Daniel knew differently. Daniel knew in this verse that this was God's doing, that God's people had strayed so far away that God had to do something to wake them up. And so God allows the Babylonians, who appear to be in charge, to take over his people so that he could redeem and restore them over time. And Daniel knows that just because the Babylonians look like they're in charge does not mean that they're in control. And he knows this not just intuitively. If you flip back a couple books in your Bible, there's a book called Jeremiah. It's a a long book. And in Jeremiah chapter 29, the prophet Jeremiah told God's people this was going to happen. Some of you are really familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11. For some of you, it's it's your life verse this is the verse you live by, right? It's a verse that a lot of people like. You search Jeremiah 29, 11 on Instagram right now, I promise you, you could scroll forever. This is a verse that people love. And in Jeremiah 29, 11, the prophet Jeremiah is talking to the people about what's about to happen to them with the Babylonians. And this is what he says. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And many of us know that verse, maybe in a different translation, but we know it. If you're going to really understand that verse and what it means, you have to back up to verse 10. Because Jeremiah is talking very specifically about what Daniel's about to go through. And this is what it says in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and bring you hope and a future. So God is talking about in this moment to Daniel. Or to the people. That they are going to have 70 years of hardship in Babylon. And that's the plan to bring them a greater future and a hope. So next time you write Jeremiah 29, 11 in a high school graduation card, you're, just know that you're writing to that person. The next 70 years are going to be tough, but that 88th birthday is going to be unbelievable, so look forward to it, all right? That's what you're saying when you write down that verse. And Daniel knows the prophecy. He knows. All right, this is what God said would happen. Could it be that in your life God does the exact same thing Sometimes. Could it be that God allows you to face hardship and face challenge in the classroom and at work and at home in order to continue to refine you and shape you into the person that he wants you to be? We tell you in those moments, remember, no matter who it looks like is in charge, your God is in control. There's a second thing that Daniel does here. Second party, you want to protect your heart, you want to protect your faith. This is the second thing that Daniel does, and it's right in verse 8 through 13. Watch what he does. But Daniel resolved in the midst of all of this indoctrination, everything that they're supposed to do, that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. You can appreciate this guy's position, right? This chief eunuch that the king's put in charge of these young men. He's saying to Daniel, you want me to take away the food that the king gave you and let you see if you can survive on your own? 
He's like, I will die for that. Daniel says this to him in verse 12, or verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. It's kind of an interesting place to draw the line, isn't it, for Daniel? Because you think he didn't say, I'm not going to learn your language. He didn't say, I'm not coming to class. I'm not going to learn your philosophy. He didn't say, I'm not going to learn your religious teaching. He didn't say, I'm not going to stay home while everyone else goes to the school. He didn't say, I won't take the name change. He took all of that. But here, he draws the line. He says, I'll do all of that. I'll take the name change. I'll take all these things, but I'm not going to eat the food the king wants me to eat. Why? Why here? Why draw the line here? Well, if we were to flip back to the front of this book and look at all the laws that God told the Israelites to live by, we wouldn't find a law that says, don't learn another language. We wouldn't find a law that says, don't learn another philosophy. We would find some laws that say, don't worship other gods, but we wouldn't find a law that says, don't ever be subject to learning about something else. We certainly would find a few laws about what to eat. And one of those laws would be to eat only certain foods. And the king's foods would not have been kosher. They would have violated God's law to eat those foods. And we would find laws about not eating foods sacrificed to idols. And they're not in someone's home in Babylon who may be nominally Babylonian and may not sacrifice their food to idols. They're in the king's palace. And that food most definitely was sacrificed to the Babylonian gods before it was served. And Daniel does this. In the midst of exile, in the midst of a culture that doesn't want him to believe and doesn't want him to follow God, he remembers that no matter who is in charge, God is in control. And here's the second thing. He resolves, he resolves not to break God's commands. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, we're out of here, we're leaving. He doesn't stand up on a milk crate and start shouting at everyone until they cut his head off. Sometimes that happens. and Sometimes God leads people to do that, but that's not what God wanted Daniel to do. Daniel was called to live in this midst of this exile, live in the culture without violating God's commands. And I wonder how that plays out in our life because it's so easy, isn't it, to try to live within this world and then watch the people around us as they do the things that God says not to do and they don't do the things that God says to do and everyone seems happy. Everyone puts on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter that they're happy and and everyone's life seems to be going well and so we start to say to ourselves, well, they don't believe and they don't do what God wants them to do and life seems to be going well for them. So what difference does it make if I do what God says to do or don't do what he says not to do or don't do what he says to do? It's so easy to begin to rationalize this in a culture that doesn't believe and will want to steal that identity from us. But Daniel resolves not to break God's command. So he says, whatever you want me to do, okay, I'll live in the palace. I'll take the name. I'll go to your classes. And we too, I'll go to the class. I'll go to class. I'll get to know people. I'll be a part of the group. I'll I'll have a social media feed. But I draw the line, 
doing the things that God says not to do or not doing the things that God says to do. And what's the result of that? There's a third thing that Daniel learns. And it comes in these last verses, starting in verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. It may not blow our minds that the guys who ate vegetables and drank water looked better than the people that ate fatty meat and drank a bunch of wine. But for them in this day, this was revolutionary. They could not believe that Daniel and his friends looked better. So the steward took away their, their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Here's what Daniel did. You want to protect your heart in this world? You want to make sure you don't lose your faith in a world that wants to steal it from you? Daniel remembered that no matter who was in charge, God was in control. Daniel resolved not to break God's commands. And the third thing Daniel knew is this, that he could rely on the presence of God with him in the midst of exile. He could rely on God's presence with him in the midst of exile. Because here's the truth for Daniel, and here's the truth for you. Even in the middle of exile, even when you walk into that office space, and it is so difficult to be a follower of Jesus Christ, even when you walk onto campus, and it's incredibly hard to tell people that you follow Jesus, even when you walk into your home, and you know that you're the only person who believes this thing, God's presence is with you. And God's presence is there every bit as much as it is in this room right now. It's as every bit as strong in the classroom as it is in your home, as it is in the workplace. God's presence is with you, and you can rely on that presence. Look what God does for Daniel and his friends in the midst of this, because they remember who's in control, and they resolve not to break his commands. God elevates them so that when the king makes a decision, when Nebuchadnezzar makes a decision, Daniel and his four friends are the ones that are there giving him wisdom and insight into that. God gives Daniel special abilities and gifts to interpret dreams and visions, which we're going to see comes in handy in the next few chapters. And God protected them physically, even though they ate less than the people around them. God strengthened them for what he called them to do. Don't forget, you serve a God that knows what it's like to be in exile. It's exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus left his home in heaven came down to earth where other people were in charge. He was still in control, but other people were in charge. And they did everything they possibly could to get rid of Jesus' identity as the Son of God all the way to killing him on a cross. And he's the only one who did it perfectly. 
perfectly remembered that God was in control, perfectly resolved to keep God's commands so that you, while you're walking through your own exile and hardship, whatever that looks like, have a Savior who's done it perfectly on your behalf and will empower you to be able to remember, to be able to resolve, and to be able to rely on God's presence. So the good news is you don't have to do this alone. God has provided for you through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit to be empowered to walk this walk in the midst of a culture that would want to take it away from you. Don't ever forget that who you are ultimately is determined by whose you are. It's not determined by anything else. Who you are is determined by whose you are. And Daniel knew no matter what Nebuchadnezzar said and no matter what he learned in this class and no matter what laws they wanted him to break, that he was God's first. What's the seat of your identity? What is the root of your identity? You know, our identity is is made up of all sorts of things. And especially in today's world, identity is this big conversation. And we find it in different places. Some of us find our identity in our work. Some of us find our identity in our achievement. Some of us find our identity in a skill we have. Some of us find it in our gender. Some of us find it in our faith. People find their, the, the root of their identity, the seed of their identity somewhere else or somewhere. You know what is the seed or the root of your identity because that's the one you'll protect at all costs. And it's also kind of like eyeglasses, You know, when you put your glasses on, I I wear glasses, I don't know if you do, but when you put glasses on, it shapes the way you see everything around you. Everything's fuzzy, and then you put the glasses on, and everything is clear. When we determine what the seed of our identity is, or the root of our identity, what we're going to put at the very bottom, it's kind of like putting on a pair of glasses. And now, everything we see in the world is shaped and determined by that. So if I'm someone that finds my identity in my work, I will view all of the things in my life through those lenses. It's about work. That's who I am. I'm, that's who I am. So I make all of my decisions based on who I see myself as. Or if my family is my identity, I make all my decisions based on family and how I approach different things. There's something that for each of us is at the very root of who we are. And when push comes to shove, we'll save that above everybody else. If it's my family and work is going to violate my family, I'll get rid of work. If it's my work and my family is going to violate my work, I'll get rid of my family. Do you see what I mean? There's something down there that is the most important thing to us where we draw our identity from. And if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ... That is supposed to be in that place. So that I'm not a business person or I'm not a teacher. I am who follows Jesus with my life. I am first a follower of Jesus Christ who on this earth has the job of being in business or the job of being a teacher. And I'm not a parent who happens to be a Christian, I am first a follower of Jesus Christ, who happens to have the responsibility of shepherding and stewarding these children that God has given to me. It's a huge paradigm shift in how we approach this world. And so we walk into our workplace and we walk into our school being a follower of Jesus Christ first. And that shapes how we look at everything. That gives us the strength to remember and resolve and rely. Because there's this world that would actively want to steal 
faith from me and from you. And if we are not careful to protect it, it can easily be gone. So what might God be calling you to do today to make sure that you don't walk out into this culture and out into this world and have what is most important to your identity taken from you? I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward as we close this morning. And as they come, I just invite you, if you would, to bow your head and close your eyes with me and think about this for a moment. And I'll ask you again. Is there a place in your life right now where you know that you have forgotten that God is in control? Because someone else is in charge, teacher, boss, spouse, family member, someone else feels like they're in charge, but you have forgotten that God's in control. Be reminded this morning that God is in control no matter who seems to have the power. Is there a place in your life where you are breaking what God has said to do? Is there a place in your life where you know God wants you to do something and you're not doing it? Be reminded this morning that your identity is in God and you can trust him. He's not going to give you rules to make your life worse. He gives us barriers to promote freedom. Maybe you know that you've been trying to do this whole thing on your own day to day. And this morning you need to rely again on God's strength and his presence. We have an opportunity to do these things in this time. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to pray. Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. At Mount Hope, we gather in Belmont every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. And in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Each week that we gather, we do so to learn more about God, grow in our love of Him and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. If you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts areas, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about us by visiting our website at mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E dot O-R-G, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at mthopebelmont. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you listen again next week.